So last Sunday was Super Bowl Sunday, which this year means it was between two teams I didn't really care too much about playing a 60-minute game that lasted like over four hours because of all the timeouts and commercials and all that. But at least with the Super Bowl, there's an entertainment value. And a lot of the times the kids and I just love to watch the commercials. Uh, so, for example, there's a Winter Soldier and Falcon trailer out. For those of you who are big Marvel fans, there's a new trailer that broke during the Super Bowl. Uh, Will Ferrell was great, wasn't he, in his GE electric car vehicle, kind of sparring a little bit with Norway in a fun way. And then you had Blake Shelton and Gwen Stefani uh, in, in a really fun, uh, fun commercial. I think it was T-Mobile. Who cares? Um, but the commercial that I wanted to talk about is one that was met with a lot of controversy. It's the Jeep ad starring uh, Bruce Springsteen. Now, this ad was met with mixed reviews from really strong support on the one hand to hurt and outrage on the other. And for those of you on the younger side, uh, Bruce Springsteen is an American rock icon, and he's kind of known for his appeal to a blue-collar, working-class America. And maybe his biggest hit was the 1984 song, Born in the USA. Now, in this commercial, Springsteen, this American idol, is driving in the winter with the top down in a vintage Jeep, which is another American icon, Jeep symbol sort of of America. And he's in middle America, literally, literally the geographic center of the contiguous United States. And there in the center of the country is this small chapel for prayer with an American flag waving. Now, the message of this ad is full of good intentions. And here's a quote from the ad itself. It's no secret. The middle has been a hard place to get to lately. Between red and blue, between servant and citizen, between our freedom and our fear... Now, fear has never been the best of who we are. And as for freedom, it's not the property of just the few or the fortunate, but it belongs to all of us. Now, there is truth in that statement, to be sure. So what is the problem? Why would that be controversial? What is the problem with meeting in the middle? Well, the problems are several, because, of course, if it were as simple as just meeting in the middle and holding hands, we'd have been united a long time ago. But the reality is that we are a distressed nation because there are vast systems of inequality that have been promoted and sustained for centuries. And in the commercial, we see a, a place of Christian worship with the American flag waving in the center of our country. Another symbol of Christian nationalism that has reared its ugly head, most notably in the recent events at the storming of the White House, or in this fanatical devotion to corrupt politicians who espouse certain nationalistic values. Now, while Bruce Springsteen himself is an advocate of human rights and more uh, racial equality, he's still a fairly privileged white guy driving in a Jeep to the rural church in middle America. And there's no acknowledgement of power inequality. There's no repentance over racial injustice. There's no indication that the issues that divide us are really being addressed in any significant way. The commercial simply encourages us to move forward, to move on, to get together. And the problem is, is that there can't be any real healing without repentance. There can't be a healthy moving forward without justice. There can't be freedom for all without a shift in the balance of power. America is at a crossroads. 
The political circus, the pandemic, the recent killings of unarmed black citizens, the exposure of the corrupt criminal justice system, the horrible track record of Im immigration policy on both sides of the political aisle, it has all converged to expose what was always under the surface. And the question is, what are we going to do about it? Now, if we just move forward by covering up the, the generational pain and suffering without lament and repentance and justice, we'll just be putting a band-aid on a festering wound that will continue to cripple us as a country and to do harm to both the oppressed and the oppressor. Nobody wins in that scenario. Now, the reason I bring this up is because it's so clear in our minds, this whole scenario, this whole situation, and it illustrates at a meta level, at a national level, what is also true on a personal level. The truth is, is that you and I as individuals are walking wounded. Every one of us has a different story. We have different wounds. We have stories of being let down or letting others down. We have stories of loss and pain and struggle and victory. We have insecurities that were planted early on in our childhood and, and have caused harm to others through our own thoughts and words or, or by withholding uh, the, the encouragement to other people or, or deeds that would have helped someone but we chose not to. Sisters and brothers, to be human in a fallen world is to be partially walking wounded. And most of us have learned how to navigate life by making allowances for our brokenness. So we put band-aids over our wounds by wearing masks of false confidence or false humility. We take on the persona of the achiever or the veil of the victim. Some of us are aggressive, some others are passive aggressive. But in all of this diversity of trauma and coping, most of us have in common the desire to keep moving forward. And it's partially because we're largely unaware of our brokenness, and it's partially because if we actually paused, if we actually took the time to work on our pain and our trauma, don't we fear that it might just be too much to bear? That it might throw everything off the rails in our life? As we continue to walk through our sermon series based on Stephen Smith's book, The Lazarus Life, we have already dealt with a couple of these themes. In week one, we were encouraged to do an honest self-assessment. And if we're honest with who we really are, we'll see that in some ways we are a lot like Lazarus, living but partially dead. We might have a pulse, but there's things under the surface that need to be brought to light so that we can allow Jesus to heal us. And so we were encouraged at the end of week one to identify one area of soul sickness that we've been living with recently. And then last week, we explored the pain that comes when Jesus seems to linger, when he doesn't act as we expect him to, when he doesn't do what we want, and when it seems that he's absent, especially in our time of need. And here we are with our soul sickness, but like, where are you, Jesus? Where are you when I feel like I need you the most? And as we explored the effect of this lingering Jesus, we saw how one of the benefits of waiting is experiencing our disillusionment. So in John chapter 11, Lazarus has died and Jesus has not come to help. He hasn't even come until four days have passed. And Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha, have both been grieving and angry that Jesus had not come sooner. In his lingering, it's revealed that inside Mary and Martha 
had expected Jesus to act in a certain way. I mean, they knew full well that Jesus didn't always heal everyone he ever met. I mean, sometimes he'd be in one town doing all these healings and exorcisms. There'd be lines of people. And then at the prompting of the Father, he would say, it's time for me to go to a new location. And there, not everybody got healed every time. But these sisters, who were close friends of Jesus, had possibly thought that Jesus would treat them in a special way. I mean, surely if he was there, he could have. He would have healed Lazarus, right? But apparently not. Apparently, the work of Jesus is both good and mysteriously. Apparently, the ability of Jesus, who, who loves and heals, is not at odds with the Jesus who doesn't act on our timetable. Sometimes, he doesn't act in our lifetime. Mary and Martha were believing in an illusion of Jesus, one that they had made up in their own minds. Their image of Jesus had to be refined so that it could reflect reality. And it was the lingering Jesus that helped them to be disillusioned. So in a similar way, we're invited to look onto those places of pain and those experiences where Jesus may seem far off and to see if we might be in need of disillusionment ourselves. So could it be that we're putting expectations on Jesus that are more our own invention than reality? And could it be that our definition of what is good and what is just and what is holy is more out of our own worldview than out of what Jesus is about as revealed in the scriptures? If we go back to our opening example with the state of our nation, we might think of the solution of meeting in the middle as an illusion. Can we all just get along? Can't we all just get back to God and country and Jeeps? But Jesus lingers. And the solution lingers. In the space of suffering, we're forced to look in the mirror and see that maybe God and country and Jeeps is a false hope of a time that never really was. And even if it was, maybe it wasn't really good for everyone in our nation. And maybe the suffering is part of the process of helping us wake to the reality that a different solution is necessary than simply going back to some golden age. In a similar way, we were encouraged last week to consider our soul sickness and the lingering Jesus as an opportunity to see with the eyes of faith. Faith that Jesus may be doing something under the surface that is truer than our hopes and more substantial than our quick fixes. This facing of reality doesn't lead us to happiness and healing or meeting in the middle or whatever our definition of a fix is. Facing reality often opens our eyes to see that the life we thought wasn't that bad was actually in need of a major overhaul. So the author of The Lazarus Life correlates the feeling of facing the reality of our brokenness with being in the tomb of death. As long as we're faking it in life, as long as we're putting band-aids over our wounds and just getting through one more day, we won't face the reality that we are in serious danger. And unfortunately, it often takes a catastrophic event or events to make us realize that we're running from God rather than living in the reality of our brokenness under the atmosphere of His grace. So take the prophet Jonah, for example. He's an Israelite, and he'd been under the oppressive thumb of the Assyrians in Nineveh on and off since before he was even born. It's just generational. And he'd grown up in an environment that made it easy for him to hate the Ninevites. 
They were the inhabitants of the capital of Assyria. Now, Jonah would have received support by his hatred by some of his more extremely nationalistic neighbors. He was a man of God, but he was also a broken man, beset by nationalism and prejudice. So when God, the God who called Israel to be a light to the nations, when that God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh and proclaim a warning to them and an offer to repent, Jonah makes a choice. On the one hand is the living God, the sovereign one of all creation, the one who Jonah the prophet supposedly worships and serves. And on the other hand is the reality of Jonah's brokenness, his years-long fostered hatred for a whole group of people. And Jonah's choice was to run. He ran in the opposite direction. Nineveh was to the east, and Jonah ran to the, to the west coast. And he got on a ship, and he wanted to sail further west, further away from where God had called him. And you probably know the story. God pursued Jonah, caused a great storm, such that it caused this crisis um, where reality could no longer be ignored. Now, as it happens, when we don't work on our brokenness, we can bring that suffering, that brokenness, to affect other people around us. So in this story, Jonah boards a ship who is crewed by a bunch of pagans. I mean, it's full of, full of people who aren't Israelite. They're not Ninevites. They, they don't care about Israel or Nineveh. They're just people trying to live their life. But Jonah brought his tomb, his soul sickness, to bear on the crew of this ship. After all, it wasn't just Jonah who was in the storm. Everybody was seasick. Everybody was scared. Everybody's throwing their belongings overboard to keep the ship from sinking. There was loss and fear. And finally, when Jonah fesses up to his role in the situation, um, and by the way, this is a confession by Jonah, not a repentance in any way. He just said, it's my fault. God's after me. He just says, throw me overboard. I mean, Jonah thinks he's likely being thrown to his death. He finally does the right thing to at least save this crew of innocent people. And so Jonah hits the water. But before he drowns, he's swallowed by a massive sea creature. And he's in its belly. And in his mind, which, oh my gosh, I must really stink in there. I don't even want to know what that was like. But in his mind, he must have thought, this is the end. I am in my tomb. It's in the tomb, in the tomb without distraction, in the tomb without illusions or quick fixes, without a care about what I'm going to do tomorrow. It's in the tomb with certain death facing. I mean, after all, what could this mean? He had no idea he would ever get puked out onto a beach. And it's in this sobering moment that he comes to his senses and cries out to God for rescue. Now, this is a turning point for Jonah. He's nowhere near healed. You, you, you don't just undo a lifetime of harboring hatred in a moment, right? But, but as he's vomited onto that beach, and as he's given a new chance on life, Jonah is reluctantly obedient to God's call to go to Nineveh. Now, when he gets there, he preaches to their leadership, and the people repent. And Jonah is upset by it. He still doesn't want this people who he's hated for so long. He doesn't want them to be forgiven and to go free. And yet again, God teaches Jonah and through Jonah teaches all of us about the merciful and loving heart of the Father. The Father desires healing. The Father bids us to come to our senses and to face the harsh reality of how far we've fallen and how deep his love is. Have you ever wondered why Jonah 
I mean, when Jonah ran from God, God could have just chosen another prophet, like a way more obedient prophet, a prophet who was more socially adjusted, a prophet with less hatred baggage, a prophet who would go and actually sort of want Nineveh to repent. But in this story, we see that God seems to care just as much for Jonah and his process of healing and his process of disillusionment as he cares for the Ninevites. God cared that Jonah could come to know him not as a tribal God uh, who is for one group and against another, but as a God who sees injustice, as a God who punishes injustice in his own time, but also a God who longs and hopes for the repentance and salvation of all even the Ninevites, and even a ship full of pagans, and even embittered, traumatized prophets like Jonah. It took the belly of a sea leviathan to help Jonah begin the path of recovery. But he was in a tomb long before that. His hatred was his tomb. You know, some people come to their senses after a divorce but they've been in the tomb of workaholism or addiction or being emotionally distant for a long time before the event actually happens. And some people come to their senses after they get fired from a job or maybe fired for the fourth time, but they've been in the tomb a lot longer than that, the tomb of anger or self-righteousness. Some tombs are the result of our choices, our sin, and some of us live entombed by our anger, or our regret, or our pride, or our addiction. But not every tomb is caused by our sin. You know, many tombs are those we inherit from the way the world just is, like disease, or the death of a loved one, or the loss of income, or infertility, or pandemics and the disappointments that come with pandemics. And still other tombs are caused by the sins of other people, like trauma after suffering abuse, or shame from your childhood, or the betrayal of a friend or a parent or a lover, the experience of racism or post-traumatic stress. All of these things that happen to us can also cause us to, to be entombed in a lots of suffering. And nobody really wants to face their tomb. If our lives are going relatively well, we rarely want to mess with the status quo. So we end up treating the symptoms rather than the, rather than the source. We live in a culture, both in the American church and just in America in general, where people are generally uncomfortable with suffering. There's kind of this sense that everyone just wants us to hurry up and move through grief and to move through recovery or to move through our character flaws. Kind of like you handle that on your own and then come back when you're happy again, and then it'll be easy to be around each other. And there's this visceral temptation to rush the process, to get back to normal. But what if it was normal in the first place that got you in the tomb? What if normal life is what was getting you in trouble? What if normal wasn't as healthy as we longingly recall? Most humans almost always seek the comfort of what is known versus the fear of the unknown, which is why we tend to go back on bad relationships and bad habits rather than moving forward. Facing our tomb, the source of our pain, it can be like a forced detox. We have a faith 
that embraces the reality of sin, the reality of death, the reality of tombs, and the reality of transformation. We worship a God who was crucified for heaven's sakes. We, we, we read apostles who wrote in, in the New Testament who were deeply flawed. And at the low point of their failure in their tombs, they allowed Jesus and the community to lead them into transformation. And none of them, none of the apostles, nobody in the Bible was ever perfected in their lifetime. So in this third sermon, trapped in the tomb. If it does anything, I want it to normalize the messiness and the pain of human life. We don't need to fear being real with each other or being real with God. In the tombs of our soul sickness and in our suffering, we may feel the absence of God, and yet it is there in the darkness that he desires to call us forth. It's there when we're facing reality, not an illusion about our life or an illusion about who we've made God up to be. It's there that the transformation can begin. So don't despair. The Jesus we worship, he himself cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is intimately acquainted with the tomb and he is the one who won't rush us. He is with us.